Jesse, how's it going? I'm crestfallen, Katie. What happened now? So this is a podcast mostly about uh, advice and, and family drama and trauma. And I'm hoping you can help me work through an issue I'm having with my dad. Well, of course. I'm the expert. Yeah. Yeah. You seem like somewhat uh, a warm, empathetic, caring figure to go to for this sort of issue. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. So I was home uh, in part to go to a Patriots game. Um Patriots season opener was great. I went with my brother and my, and his friend and we had a great time. My dad couldn't go because, uh, what's that thing Christians do where a baby is born and then they drown it? Uh, Briss? Baptism, I think. He had to go to one of those. He had to go to a baby drowning. They let Jews go to those? Yeah, he snuck in. He tucked his, uh, the lizard tail sort of into his <laughs> pants. So it was fine. Um, so anyway, I get home and, uh, you have like a nice setup for recording. I think you put up some acoustic paneling and stuff like that. I literally use an Amazon box that I glued acoustic foam into and I carry it with me wherever I go. Uh, of course, especially if I go, it fits in your cargo shorts. (laughs) I'll just, if I'm going back to Boston, I'll just bring it with me and record the podcast there. I get home. I can't find the box and it's in our little room where we put our recycling stuffed with trash. Somebody. Put trash in your recording studio? Yeah. My dad fucking filled my recording studio with trash. <laughs> he claimed that he just didn't understand. It did. Too. In his defense, it just looked like a cardboard box he would fill like bottles and magazines with for recycling. I think he's sending a clear message that he hates my podcast and he wants me to quit. Well, obviously. I mean, look, as our, as regular listeners know, you are Jewish. I cannot imagine something that is more disappointing for a Jewish parent to have a son be a fucking podcaster as opposed to a doctor. Or a lawyer. It's, it's, I've really failed everybody. So, um, yeah, you know, I figured the best, most mature way to handle this was to not to talk to my dad, but just to go public with it here. So, um, yeah, patrons, I will give you my dad's home address and phone number, and I hope you'll just set him straight. Did you take your recording studio out of the recycling? No, it was the recycling that was in my recording studio. <laughs> okay, did you take the recycling? Is it still – is your recording studio now filled with bottles? Is that what's clinking around behind you? Uh, no, I – it was it was nothing disgusting, so I just dumped it out and I took the box with me and I'm now using it again. So this box has been through some shit. I should like sign it or something. Yeah, you should at least put a post-it on it that says Jesse's recording studio. Do not recycle. Can Katie, what is the name of this podcast that is literally full of trash? This is Black and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single, and wow, do we have a show today. We do have a show today. This is a very exciting one because we are actually going to break some news today. Are we? Yeah. Give me a hint. Your segment. Oh, yeah. You are going to break some news. I am. Oh, man, that's super exciting. Are we going to do that first or are we going to do the other thing first? Let's do the other thing first, but, but before we do that, I wanted to ask you about something. Go for it. Okay, so you probably saw this week there was some kerfuffle online because CBS announced that they were going to start airing a show called The Activist. Did you see this? Luckily, I did not. So this is a fantastic idea for a show. I I can't believe it all went so wrong. So the idea was that three celebrities, Usher, a woman who's married to one of the Jonas Brothers, and then another woman who did blackface in like 2019, were going to be a panel of judges, and they were going to judge activists who were in competition to raise money for their cause. And the way that they would – yeah, it sounds great, right? And the metrics were going to be based on like social media likes. This is I'm, – I'm in the middle of a 30 Rock rewatch and they have a fake reality show called MILF Island. <laughs> this is even better than MILF Island. Well, unfortunately, cancel culture struck again and the show no. is now being reimagined as a documentary series, which is very unfortunate because I was thinking this would be a great opportunity for Jesse Singles Home for Unwed Horses. <laughs> I would love to go on. So, OK, wait. You said it was Usher and then two problematic 
problematic women. Only one's problematic. The other one is married to a Jonas brother. She's a Indian celebrity. That's like the opposite of being problematic. Okay. And they were, it right. is problematic that you don't know their names. You just know right. they're married to Right. It's, it's very sexist of me. I would have, I mean, I know I'm the target audience for stuff like this. I would have watched it. I think they should bring it back. Oh, absolutely. Instead, we're just getting another fucking docuseries. And according to NPR, this was supposed to air in October. So my assumption is that they probably already filmed the show. Man, I gotta, I gotta do more like reading before we do this podcast. That sounds like a good story that I missed. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. The horses are gonna have to go panhandle or something like that. Mm-hmm. Those poor horses. Um, you also wanted to talk a little bit about Gawker. Publishing a surprisingly good article, no? Yes. So last week, as listeners may recall, I said that Gawker was not worth the paper that it's printed on, which is nothing <laughs> because it's online. And I unfortunately have to take that all back this week because Gawker published an actually fantastic article. This one was called, Help, I Couldn't Stop Writing Fake Dear Prudence Letters That Got Published, and it was by a writer named Bennett Madison. Uh, let me just read you the intro to this, Jesse. Sometime at the tail end of 2018, shortly after abandoning yet another draft of what was supposed to be my fifth young adult novel, I took up a different form of fiction. I started writing fake letters to Dear Prudence, Slate's long-running advice column. So this resolves the question, does Slate publish fake advice questions? And the answer is a resounding <laughs> Yes. This, of course, will not be a surprise to anyone who actually reads uh, Slate's advice columns, particularly Dear Prudence. Um, we did a segment about this on a previous episode. So if you want more information about that, we'll put a link to that show in the show notes. But the for- the short version is that a lot of these columns uh, – and Slate has like 15 different advice columns, but particularly Dear Prudence – these questions read like a sort of parody of an uber woke person who doesn't have any real problems and so creates things to complain about. Like a recent one that we discussed on our show uh, was to Slate's parenting advice column and someone wrote in to complain that their white child was required to take Spanish in middle school and the problem is that that's cultural appropriation. Uh, here's a direct quote from that letter. Latinx people have been mocked for speaking Spanish, and to congratulate a wild child for learning it and speaking it doesn't sit well with me. So as far as we know, this was not the work of Bennett Madison, uh, but it still sounds fake as fuck. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot – like I feel like one out of every three, Dear Prudy in particular, just sounds extremely fake. The sex ones always sound made up, or maybe I just don't know anything about sex, but they're often very weird. I, there's like – I think possible. these columns tend to do really well and bring Slate a lot of readership. So this question of like how – how fake they are is interesting. And, and this guy, Madison Bennett, was it? Bennett Madison. Confusing name. Bennett Madison. Confusing. Um, yeah. So he seems to be admitting to, to having been part of the problem, right? I mean, if you think it's a problem. Or part of the awesome. Or maybe you just yeah. think it's hilarious. Right, right. Yeah. A lot of this, I think that the, the audience is not people actually seeking advice. It's people like opening these for hate clicks, or at least that's why I read slate advice columns. Okay, so Bennett Madison, who wrote this piece for Gawker, he's he has since retired from the fake letter writing business, which is why he came out. We'll get to why he retired in a moment. Um, but for most of the time, he was doing this Dear Prudence, the column that he targeted, was written by Daniel Lavery, who has come up on the podcast before. Um, Daniel has since left Slate to write for Substack. But before Daniel Lavery was Dear Prudence, Dear Prudence was friend of the pod, Emily Offey. And Emily Offey is an incredible journalist in her own right. She was also very good at the column. Um, and if you don't know her work, look up her Atlantic series on campus rape. It's just fascinating. So Lavery, on the other hand, well, let's just read what, how Madison described it. Lavery transformed the column into something of a tribunal, doling out po-faced judgment to guilty white cis-sets for the crime of allyship. Was it wrong for a letter writer to call the cops when she saw a home invasion <laughs> taking place on the street? 
You can't go back in time and undo what you did, of course, an an unamused pretty tist. Would it be morally acceptable for another to steal their parents' phones and secretly delete objectionable content from their Facebook feeds? Go ahead and unsubscribe them with my blessing, pretty advised. So that's Daniel Lavery. That line of you can't go back and undo what you did when what you did is reporting a crime and like a serious crime, a break in, a home invasion invasion is like, that's a crime. You're not reporting kids for, for smoking weed. That was just like perfect. That perfectly captures what Slate has become. You can't undo what you did with, with what you did being something totally reasonable that people should do. Po-face tribunal. Wait, what does po-face, what does po-face mean? I don't know, but I like it. <laughs> you just made it up. It's a good word. <laughs> um, okay, so Bennett Madison. So he did this during a lull in his YA career. So he starts writing Dear Prudence. And there's a backstory here, which he sort of obliquely alludes to in the post. At one point he writes, Writing fake letters to advice columns could not be considered a, a gr- good career move. After all, I was unpaid and wouldn't even get a byline out of it. On the other hand, it was easy and creatively fulfilling. In my anonymous fabricated letters to Prudence, I could follow the most demented threads of my imagination without having to anticipate the omnivalent flavors of a program that might rain down on me from YA's brigade of cultural revolutionaries. Jesse, do you want to give a little quick explainer on what YA's brigade of cultural revolutionaries might refer to? Yeah, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but young adult fiction is in the midst of this like psychotic meltdown, basically, where there's regularly these campaigns against books that often people haven't read. Where they'll take like review copies or galleys, they'll take a sentence out of context. Um, often a sentence where it's like a bad character saying something bad and they'll attribute that to the author. So it's like, um, if you took a snippet of American History X where Edward Norton's character, who's a Nazi, acts like a Nazi and you said that means the creators of this film are pro Nazi. It's literally that stupid. Like when I describe it, it sounds like I'm like straw manning it, but I've written about these blowups and they're crazy. So, this column combines several of my interests in that yeah. there's the Dear Prudy thing. But then he's saying like the reason he got into writing these fake letters is because, um, you know, even though he's gay, so in theory, quote unquote, marginalized, he, he just found the climate of YA just so stifling. He, he couldn't really write anything interesting. Although he had to be clear, he also talks about like partly it's also like getting older right. and, and having it. He found it harder to write young characters when he was older, which is fair enough. Yeah, like his characters are all like starting to worry about their 401ks. <laughs> um, so yeah, so as you mentioned, he's gay and then, and he got in trouble kind of before this moment that we call cancel culture. So, so this is according to our Y, YA correspondent, Kat Rosenfield. Um, Madison in, uh, in 2013, he wrote a book called September Girls that was panned by a bunch of reviewers as sexist. And if you go to the Goodreads page, you'll see a bunch of one star reviews with a bunch of other people arguing that actually the book isn't sexist just because some of the characters are, which is something people used to believe. He also, even before that, he wrote a book with homophobic characters. And one of the reviews I read complained that the characters didn't resolve their homophobia, which of course, like you must do in fiction. You must re- resolve all of your, your moral flaws. Before the end of the book. It's like, it's so crazy that anyone has to say this, not only say it, but say it over and over again, that if there's a racist character in your book, that doesn't mean you're racist. These are just like, I can't tell how many of these people are just basically illiterate or if they're pretending to be because they can get outrage points for it. Some some anthropologist who's very brave should write like a dissertation on the YA online community because it's truly deranged. It is, yes. 
Okay, so things were not going well for Madison in YA, and so he began writing these letters that really any intern should have been able to peg as fake, but of course got published in Slate instead. And he did really – he was very good at this. Of the 25 letters that he submitted, he writes in Gawker that 12 of them were either featured in the column or on the Dear Prudence podcast. So he's got almost a 50% hit rate there. That's pretty amazing. That that suggests he's really figured out what they want and he's been giving it to them. Yeah. So here are a couple of his headlines. Help, my friend thinks I'm stealing vaccines from African-American grandmothers to attend sex resorts. We've all been there. Common problem. Help, my mother is trying to convince the guests at my gay wedding to come dressed as Disney characters. So part of the reason this is such a delicious read is that he like comes out and says that he thinks that Lavery's advice was pretty much shit. Um, but he also had some thoughts on how the letters were edited. And I, and I was wondering about this because we might have talked about this on the show, but at some time, at some time in the past year, both Savage Love, and Dear Prudence received the same letter in the same week. The letter was from a woman who found out, a woman I think in her 70s, 60s or 70s, who found out that her husband had been sexting with her cousin, his cousin, sorry. And so she wrote, she wrote both of these advice columns, got wildly different answers. But the way that the columns were printed, and it, it's obvious why they would choose these ones to print. It's a weird fucking problem. Very interesting. Um, the way that they were printed – Dear Prudence took out a bunch of rel- of like seemingly relevant info from the letter. So I, I've been wondering what kind of liberties are taken, at least in Dear Prudence, um, in the editing of the letters. Are you are you suggesting that a slate column excise relevant context to make for like clearer <laughs> Shocking. Story you know, and like I don't know if this one in particular was in print, but there are some restrictions. Like sometimes the letters that advise columnists are, good, are too long and it won't fit in a print column. But Savage Love actually is in print and he was able to print much more of the relevant information. Okay, so here's what Madison writes about that. Sometimes my work was altered in ways that changed its substance. In my daughter is pretending to be demonically possessed and I can't take it anymore. I made a point of establishing that the advice seeker fears dampening her daughter's creative spirit by scolding her for crowd walking around the house and spitting on her family members. When the letter finally made an appearance on Prudy's podcast, it had been stripped, stripped of its caveats to allow Prudy to deliver a sermon about nurturing childhood creativity. And this is a quote, apparently Lavery said, this child is perfect and has a great big ima- imagination. And this was in the, in the podcast version. So they're really shouldn't have been any like licensed any reason to strip out this incredible detail that's really weird man except for the fact that it makes it sound fake yeah exactly so the thing that's kind of always driven me crazy about dear prudence under lavery is that the column always seemed to be more about lavery and his own sense of what's right and wrong than actually figuring out figuring out what's best for the people who are for some reason asking him for advice so bennett he stopped writing dear prudy this year and here's why One of the letters that he wrote was called Help, My Husband Won't Remove His Mask Even for Sex. And after it appeared on Dear Prudy, it was picked up by Tucker Carlson, who featured it on a segment, and this is not hard to imagine, with the Chiron, Terrified Liberals Keep Their Masks On During Sex. (laughs) Totally inevitable. Oh, it's so good. So I tried to find the clip, and I couldn't find it, but I did find something else sort of interesting. And that's an article entitled, Couples Should Wear Face Masks During Sex, New Study Insists. And this is not a, like, holy shit, the libs are crazy thing. This is just a piece about a study about how COVID is a high – or sex is a high-risk activity for spreading COVID, which, duh. Jesse, guess where this was published? Oh, no. Slate? Fox News. Wait, Fox News published a study saying people should – Yes. 
did they and they didn't do it as like look how dumb the libs are no and this is fox news online foxnews.com is much different than tucker carlson yeah sometimes they do like good like straightforward reporting that's what this is and then in the same you know media ecosystem tucker carlson turns <laughs> just uses a dear prudy letter yeah uses it to fucking own the libs i still think it's pretty stupid that the idea that you should wear a mask when you're having sex, like, I just, I refuse to believe that that would do anything. But yeah, separate. Well, especially with your, I mean, you're pro- fucking probably going to get COVID one way or another in that situation. And also if it's like your long-term partner who, you know, like lives in your house with you, it's yeah probably going to get, it's probably not sex that's going to fucking transmit COVID. It was a stupid letter, but of course, Dear Pretty published it. Okay. So, so Madison, of course, naturally he had mixed feelings about Tucker milking his fake letter for content. Uh, in the piece in Gawker, he writes, while part of me was excited to have duped a dweeb like Tucker Carlson, which has an obviously phony scenario, I was disturbed to have provided chum for the pro-COVID bleach-drinking lunatics in his audience. And unless I decided to re- remove my own smelly and soiled mask and reveal myself, no one would ever know that Carlson had been taken in. And this gets to a problem that I've encountered and one that we're going to come back to in our next segment, which is that while I enjoy making fun of, you know, like neurotic hyper PC liberals who think they're oppressed because they use special pronouns, I also don't want my own criticisms of liberal excesses to be used as ammunition on the right. But it's not like you have any control over this content once you put it out in the world, right? Um, I don't personally think, and I'm not going to like silence myself just because Fox News might decide to like turn my content into their content, which has actually happened before. But what do you think about this problem? Yeah, I think it's tricky. And I think it's, um, you know, it's partly a matter of proportion of figuring out if you wanted to, we could just tweet and talk about like random crazy lib outrage stories all day. I think we try to like, make more substantive points because we're progressive and and we sort of, you know, I I think we both overall believe in our side and want it to do better. And we think it's hampered by a lot of the ridiculous shit going on, but it's absolutely a threat that let's take you out of context. I mean, look, the the article I wrote on youth gender, uh, I don't need. I mean, this is, this is, but it it is relevant. Like, so this article that you wrote on, on youth gender transition, the one that I wrote on detransitioners, my way of dealing with the inevitable, the inevitability that the right wing was going to it, like latch onto this was to put a bunch of paragraphs in the piece about how the right wing was going to latch onto it. It doesn't no, matter, it doesn't matter though. Like they're still going to do it one way or another. But you can't not do your job because of the the possibility that this is going to be used for some sort of fodder. Yeah, my so there was a reference to mine. The full story is just it showed up in an amicus brief um, supporting one of the laws banning youth gender transition, and they cited it as evidence that. Transition doesn't work, which was the opposite of what I said. So it was an interesting thing where the right flipped my argument 180 just as the left had. Like everyone's just fucking full of shit basically. I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes so you can see exactly what I mean. But it's like a very frustrating and helpless feeling. And then of course people say, oh, see, you're giving ammunition to the right. And it's, you know, I just think if you – there's a style of writing we're both familiar with and we both have a lot of disdain for where you're sort of scared of your own shadow and you can't say anything that risks any conservative using it for like quote unquote their side. And that's just like not, you will never produce anything of worth if that's a big concern. There's, there's things you can do around the margins to prevent yourself from being weaponized, like what you just said, but like you don't really have control over it. You just need to decide I do or don't care enough about this thing to write about it or talk about it and then let the uh, chips fall where they may. 
Right. And that's not to say we shouldn't, uh, that we should like totally ignore the, the consequences of what happens after we hit publish on something. We should be aware of what's, what's happening and sort of weigh the pluses and minuses, you know, and, but with journalism, I feel like there's a difference between that and like activism. Like I do think that, uh, you know, people who are setting garages on fire or whatever in the aftermath of a police shooting, should be aware that that action is going to be used by the political right to condemn the entire left. Well, but it's also just morally wrong in its own right. Exactly. It's morally – that's the thing. It's morally wrong in its own right. And also those people are probably not like Biden voters. <laughs> the um, I, I think there's some examples of like – OK. So there's constant outrage videos of like random college freshmen having meltdowns over social justice stuff. I try never to share that stuff unless there's like a really good broader reason to because – you're just shining a spotlight on some 18-year-old. And there's often no, like, at any given point in history, there were dumb 18-year-olds where if we had cameras, we could have caught them being dumb and young and, and emotional. Dude, my professor's fucking memoir. Your professor what? My professor's memoir. What was that? My professor wrote a memoir. And on September 11th, I posted a photo of it, uh, like a picture of of a of, of an excerpt. And it's about uh, a student of hers, which she calls a freckle-faced tomboy, who on September 11th came to class, sat down, and while everybody was weeping, said, we deserved it. <laughs> oh, you posted this on Twitter. I thought you were just posting – No, no. I, I didn't get the full context. I thought you were just posting a snippet of something you wrote. This is in their memoir, something – her memoir. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank God that this was like just a, a, like in a little red memoir and not like – a fucking TikTok video. Can you imagine, like, especially given the climate at that time when everyone was scared and, and freaked out and for understandable reasons, like... And me and Bill Maher were speaking truth. Yeah, well, I, like, that would have potentially ruined your life for quite some time. And you were just like, you, like you're a kid, whatever. I, Katie, I forgive you. <laughs> but like, it's like, it, just to think about what that could have done to you just from being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think everyone knows that intuitively, but then they go ahead and they click retweet on a, these videos of 18 year olds freaking out or B even more commonly people in the midst of me clear mental health breakdowns, like screaming racial slurs or something, where it's just like, I'm not sure this is really who this person is, and I'm not sure you want to instantly disseminate this. I, I just think we should have like a little bit more empathy in situations like that. Yeah, for sure. And I will one last thing about this. I know why you forgive me, and it's because Jews did 9-11. Yeah. No, we got a call from Israel telling us not to go to New York that week. So <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so I want to read one last part of uh of uh Bennett Madison's Gawker piece because I just love the sentence. So this is referring to the immediate aftermath of the Tucker Carlson hit, and he writes, This bittersweet success came at a moment when I was already contemplating retirement. Daniel Lavery had hung up his prudence hat after taking a $430,000 advance to write about geese on Substack in early 2021. <laughs> and the news depressed me. <laughs> yeah, it also depressed me about it. Yes. So Daniel Lavery took this massive advance from Substack and his he does not seem to like Daniel Lavery was a sort of beloved feminist writer. He's a trans guy. Before he transitioned, he worked at a place called The Toast and was like very beloved in this sort of niche. I don't know. People hate it when I say niche. Niche. Does that make you feel better, Canadians? Uh, like feminist sort of weird fiction. And, um, and so one of his pieces for Substack, his like most popular piece, 
is from the perspective of a goose. It's I find it completely unreadable. So when when Bennett says that the news depressed him, I feel you. It depressed me. Is too. that from? Was that a jump off of Untitled Goose Game? I know what's that. You're not you're not nerdy enough, Katie. There's a game that everyone loved. I didn't play it where you just play a goose wreaking havoc. So I think. Daniel was likely just writing about the goose in that game, which doesn't excuse this horrendous act, but provides some context. The piece is called I'm the Horrible Goose That Lives in the Town, and it begins, I'm the horrible creeping bag of sand that is the most worst to you. I will use my beak to mischief you, and I will press B. Is that a game reference? Yeah, I will press B. Yeah, it's just, yes, I'm not, again, I'm not excusing this you know, nine eleven level act, but he's just he's just like doing a takeoff of this game that like internet nerds in his orbit were obsessed with. Yeah, means absolutely nothing to me. Anyway, so I do find it interesting that this was published in Gawker. I do not know why Bennett Madison chose to grace Gawker with this incredible piece of work, but it's in Gawker. What does that tell you about New Gawker, which we talked about on uh, the last episode? Yeah, I'm confused because like the last time we talked about them was last week and they were being very old Gawker. I think they likely would have been on the side of the YA cultural revolutionaries in most cases. For sure. And it's also interesting to me that they like this is a takedown of Daniel Lavery. And it's interesting to me that Gawker published it because Daniel Lavery is kind of beloved. I don't know about the interpersonal dynamics of that circle, um, but I would think that Daniel Lavery would be like well-liked among Gawker types. I don't think someone coming fresh to this issue would have any idea what he's talking about with the YA stuff. Just like last week, someone coming fresh to the my book review who doesn't know who I am, which is most people, would have no idea what that's about. Yes. Yeah. No, I think you're right about this. It, it, his references to the YA meltdowns are very oblique. Um, it seems like he's not saying what he could be saying, or he's not at least saying it as uh, directly as he could. So um, one other interesting thing about this, Jesse, do you think uh, Daniel Lavery has commented on this on Twitter? Hmm. I could see it both ways, to be honest. No, he has not. He has not said anything about this. And, oh, I guess because it made because of the the selective editing and stuff, it makes him look a little bit questionable. I mean, the whole thing makes him look fucking terrible. He's been answering fake advice columns, um, but yes, no comment from Daniel Avery. My favorite was the one where someone's, I think their partner was a cop or was becoming a cop. And their dumb white fake radical friends were like giving them shit that they were close to a cop. It was so obvious that this person wasn't the asshole that their dumb fake radical friends were. And Daniel Lavery like all but endorsed like, yep, your friends are going to disown you because you're close to a cop, which is just the level of just existing on another planet from the rest of the country um, that emanates from this column since – or emanated once Lavery took over is just astounding. Yeah, it's very interesting to compare uh, Dear Prudence under Emily Offie and Dear Prudence under under Daniel Lavery. And it's totally possible that Emily Offie also got fake questions. Like there was the infamous one about two twins who – twin brothers who were in a – long-term sexual relationship with each other who were like each other's life partners and who wanted to come out to their family. I hope that one was fake. I was, yeah, was going to say the opposite. I want that to be true so badly. <laughs> There's videos about that you can find online, Jesse. Okay, I'll do a search during the break. All right, anything else about this? No, I mean, I think the new Gawker is probably doomed, but as long as they can get some pieces like this up um, before they lose all their VC funding this time next year, it could be a fun ride in the meantime. This is certainly a step up from uh, their review of Cool Ranch Doritos. Uh, I haven't read that yet. I wanted to save that for like when I really needed something to dig into. All right, we will be back in a moment. As the longest-running magazine in the world, The Spectator believes that journalism must be witty and insightful, that ideas should be discussed without constant threat of cancellation. The Spectator never confuses the serious with the dull. It isn't right-wing or left-wing. 
It believes in challenging, informing, and entertaining readers. Since its founding in 1828, its mission has been to convey intelligence, not ideology. The Spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. As a publication, it believes that life is bigger than politics, which is why it covers arts, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazines plus a free Spectator hat. Just use offer code BARPOD at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Go to spectatorworld.com slash special offer and use offer code BARPOD. I love The Spectator because it is dedicated to wit, strong reasoning, and brilliant writing. Even if you disagree with the politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. There's amazing contributors, including Christopher Buckley, PJ O'Rourke, Julie Bindle, Christopher Caldwell, Lionel Shriver, Douglas Murray, Toby Young, Slava Zizirk, Roger Zizirk, Roger Scridden, Rod Little, and me. I'm the media columnist, and you could go right now and read a thing I did on Afghanistan that's objectively pro-Taliban. <laughs> My people. From the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture to cultural cuisine, The Spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of The Spectator for free, plus a free Spectator hat when you subscribe at spectatorworld.com slash specialoffer. Use offer code BARPOD at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com slash specialoffer and offer code BARPOD. All right, Katie, it's that part of the show where we find people, their love connections and or murderers and or murder victims. It could be both, really. We have them all in a Google Doc that I'm sad to say is about 20 pages long, although we're already about halfway through. So don't send in your submissions. Unfortunately, we capped that at the end of August. What you can do is respond to any of these at barpodpersonals at gmail.com, right? You did a terrible job introing this. This is our personal ad service. For new listeners, a while ago, we opened up a a new love-finding service for our patrons, our dear patrons, and allowed them to submit personal ads. We got a lot, and we are working our way through them right now. I'm sorry. I did not muster the requisite enthusiasm. Shall we get to the, shall we get to the listings? Yes. Once again, if you are interested in answering any of these questions, specify who you're looking for and write barpodpersonals at gmail.com. Yes. Here we go. Hiya, I'm Joseph, a 25-year-old public policy research analyst in Phoenix, Arizona, seeking an overly talkative and assertive woman to balance out me being a beta bitch. Aw, fellow beta bitch. Uh, you can say it more nicely, but it's true. He said it <laughs> with a frowny face. No, I'm not going to say it more nicely. You're a beta bitch. I like vegan food, beta bitch, housing and urban policy, beta bitch, basketball. That's fairly alpha. And talking about literally anything in the universe. This is you. It's basically me. Except you uh, eat cheese. 12 years ago and I'm older. Howdy. I'm 6'6", 30 – wow, that's tall. 6'6", 31-year-old straight white male in Tucson, Arizona. I work at a dive bar, have a cat, and in my free time, I enjoy hiking, lifting weights, boxing, training, and riding my motorcycle around southern Arizona. I identify as a Leninist and a materialist and am mostly energized by class politics and environmental issues, but most of the less of spaces I've encountered around here are overrun by anarchist or wimpy libs. I grew up pretty white trash, have a lot of tattoos and a mullet, was a teenage anarchist. And I have an associate's degree in journalism. Down to date somebody or just have some seltzers and tequila with a comrade. Oh, comrade, man. You're not allowed to say comrade if you listen to this podcast. Or do a hike up in the Catalinas to look at bugs and plants. I just like to meet more people who envision a leftist future animated by universal demands for working class rather than identitarian liberalism and dim sock capitalism. You got to read their favorite podcasts. My favorite podcasts are True and On, Bar Prod, and Come Town, and my favorite band alternates between Thin Lizzy, Barzum, and Steely Dan. <laughs> the podcasting holy trinity of True and On, Bar Pod, and Come Town. 
I'm surprised Red Scare isn't in there. Is it weird for me when we're reading these for my mind to wander to like, if I was gay, blank? That's normal. You know what? You're just going through a phase. If I, if I was gay, this, and I lived in Phoenix, ladies, I'm just saying you should go for this guy. It sounds pretty good to me. I know you don't like comrades, but it sounds pretty good. You guys would have very tall babies. <laughs> Bisexual conspiracy enthusiast seeks close encounters of the turf kind. 29-year-old problematic female located in Nashville, Tennessee, looking for a man or a woman with heterodox views who gets a little tingly when they think about UFOs. Ooh. I used to be a member of DSA, but now my politics can be described as basically agrees with Katie on everything. I'm an expert at making New York-style pizza and an amateur at stand-up paddleboarding. Whoa. Katie, this is a hit me up if your idea of a good time is live music followed by staying up all night talking about weird shit with or without drugs. Let's walk around East Nashville and make fun of the corny lawn signs together. Jesse, if we were ever going to be in a throuple, this might be our woman. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing I've been giving a lot of thought to, Katie. We'll talk about it off. <laughs> Sciencing by on your side. L.A. scientist, 30 male straight, seeks fellow cultural illiterate for dated couples, Halloween costumes, fellow musician for prog funk covers of Stacey's mom, or fellow vegan for erotic kale massage. Dolphin Myers-Briggs <laughs> types, E. Jesse in the streets, Robin D'Angelo in the sheets. Good uh, one. Strictly platonic. NYC lesbian dinosaur seeks friends for food and light thought crime. Me, friendly, nerdy, 30-something married les whose local friends would call me a Nazi just for listening to this podcast. Interests include food and cooking, cats, languages, public health, feminism, epistemology, and computer science. You, not a thought cop. Into stimulating conversation and respectful disagreement. Cool with low-key hangouts or willing to propose other stuff. Female and or gay, a plus. NYC local preferred, but I wouldn't turn down long-distance pals. Feral but housebroken. 65-year-old male seeks Bay Area female similarly amused by the social justice batshittery. No realistic woman can expect a guy to write about his inner self, inner child, hopes, dreams, and aspirations. Most of us cannot even verbalize our preferred cup size, let alone anything more emotionally demanding. So please take it on faith that I am warm, caring, sensitive, nurturing, evolved, great conversationalist, long walks on the beach and red wine by the fire, etc., etc. And yes, that new dress makes you look even younger and more willowy. Overeducated but undersophisticated, I've spent too much time in my life in remote places overseas and have aggressively avoided absorbing any pop culture since the Jefferson Airplane broke up. Have not watched TV since high school, still worrying about Brad and Jen. My tits ain't great. 30-year-old left-of-center New Yorker seeks intellectually curious heterodox lady. I work in higher ed and I'm into nonfiction, museums, swimming, dive bars, Italian sandwiches, and the Sopranos. I'm a straight white male, but willing to do the work with you, wink, wink. Of course, by do the work, I mean reading the works of Robin D'Angelo to you before we make sweet, sweet love to the songs of Juzi. <laughs> that one goes back. Juzi for people who weren't around when Jesse dropped his hit rap is Jesse's hit rapper name. Mm-hmm. Leftist exhaustion, 38-year-old man, Washington, D.C. I'd love to find my match, but I'm just so, so tired. That's because I spend day after day justifying my very ex existence as a person of left-handedness. Gear shifts, guitars, handshakes, firearms, all are designed first and foremost to protect and perpetuate entrenched systems of dextronormativity. Even my apparent privilege as a holder of a computer science doctorate feels nullified when I sit down to a keyboard with a mouse on the right side. If you like curled-up cats and downward-facing dogs, and you're an ambitious heterodox thinker who presents as female and has large immobile gametes and great tits of any size, then your hand might be the one thing in this world that is actually made for mine. Aw, good one. 33-year-old gay American with moderate political views who just moved to Ottawa, Canada in parentheses, thank you, and is into French, birding, but doesn't hate dogs or film strangers, <laughs> and board games. Little Central Park Karen reference. I'm looking for another male with whom to have interesting discussions, pack up my Forester and go for a road trip and read Samistat in a local cafe with a white fragility dust cover. 
Early 30s, okay, 33, but not rounding up. NYC woman sees interesting and available man. Bonus points if you had a mustache and or well-read. My career prospects are sort of middling despite my Ivy League degree. See what I did there? But I am nice, normal, and moderately funny. I hate all podcasts except for this one and enjoy bars, museums, reading, and exchanging heterodox hot takes. You misread it. She said she said mustache or are well-read. So if you have a mustache, you're not well-read, or you are well-read and don't have a mustache, you're fine. Okay, so it's not mutually exclusive. Should we do one more? Yeah. Here's my personal. 43-year-old single white male, yikes, who engages in the literal spirit murder of NYC teenagers between the months of September and June, seeks a woman with somewhat center-adjacent viewpoints for short-to-long-term companionship. No preference on race or religion, though I am a failed Catholic. I teach history and definitely do not teach critical race theory, of which I am constantly interrogating my white male guilt over. In all seriousness, I like lifting weights, travel, craft beer, accept IPAs, and nuanced discussion. Oh, and bar pod, obviously. Keeping standards low to be safe. Always was. Uh, we are Blocked and Reported. We're a podcast. Uh, what's our email address? Blocked Reported Podcast at gmail.com to reach out. Reddit.com slash r slash Blocked Reported is the subreddit. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. What else? We have a subscription program. If you go to patreon.com slash Blocked Reported, you can get three extra episodes, at least three extra episodes of this podcast every month, including a bunch of other shit, Ask Me Anythings, Hangout, discounts on merch which you can buy at barpod.org we got tote bags we got hoodies we got mugs we got thongs we got ball gowns that say tax the rich it's just it's your one-stop shop yeah we got burkas yes join us on patreon patreon.com slash boxing reported should we be like little whispering middle school girls and say that we might have an exciting announcement very soon or should we just leave that out let's uh let's whisper about a little bit we might have an exciting announcement very soon leave it at that stay tuned Okay, so second half of the podcast. This was a story that actually fell into your lap, but I'm going to tell it. Yes, do it. For reasons we'll explain. Yes. Katie, surely you have heard of the abortion ban that the Supreme Court upheld in Texas. No, what is that? What is abortion? What is a ban? Be more specific. All of it. I'm confused. It sounds like cancel culture striking again. This was uh, a little bit of cancel culture, actually. So – Okay, SCOTUS recently refused to block Texas's six-week abortion ban, uh, SB8. As is the case in Texas, they went a little bit bigger <laughs> than people do elsewhere. It's like an extremely draconian law, pretty authoritarian. There's no exceptions for rape or incest. As many people have pointed out, a lot of women don't even know they are pregnant at six weeks. Uh, it, there's also a bizarre provision that allows Texans to sue anyone who like aided or abetted a post-six-week abortion, here's how Mark Joseph Stern summed it up in Slate. Random strangers can sue any abetter to an abortion anywhere in Texas and collect a minimum of $10,000 plus attorney's fees. People are justifiably very concerned about this law. Dude, I love this. This sounds like a great <laughs> way to make money. I am going to go to it's, a uh, – I'm going to go stand outside of Planned Parenthood and get people's numbers and make myself a little bit of cash. Actually, if we could broaden this out so that you could report anybody for anything, this would be great. Just I would just stand out. Yeah, I would like stand outside of a bar and watch people have a drink and drive away and then follow them and collect $10,000. Yeah, yeah. Just empower everyone. I, my understanding of small government conservatism is you want to deputize basically every citizen to act yes. as government agents and enforce the laws. Everybody gets a little deputy badge and it's yellow. It's a yellow star. <laughs> <laughs> no, Katie, no. <laughs> so people are justifiably concerned about this law. I don't want to gloss over that. It is a very bad law, but 
we feel like you guys probably have no shortage of other places where you can get legal analysis and learn about why it's bad and learn about the Supreme Court ruling. We're going to stick instead to what we do best, which is internet bullshit. Yep. Not long after this, uh, the ruling came down and, and SCOTUS refused to block the bill, a bunch of scary stuff got posted online about basically bounty hunters. I think Vice was like one of the first people to pick this story up with the headline, Reddit bans abortion bounty hunter forum. So in other words, a subreddit was set up for, for bounty hunters to sort of coordinate and try to find and punish women getting abortions. And Very smart. Very smart. You got to work together if you're going to get that money. Very entrepreneurial. Um, so this article included a tweet from Kendall Brown, who, who's an activist. Uh, day one of Texas's new abortion law and men are already strategizing on Reddit about how to turn in women they impregnated to earn the $10,000 bounty. Genius. 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 Kendall Brown included a screenshot from the bounty hunter subreddit. Here's the text. I, I try not to laugh when I read this. You'll understand why I'm laughing soon. I'm not laughing at that. The bill, the law itself is horrible. As a bounty hunter, would it be unethical to collect bounty on a perp that I impregnated? I do my best to live my life by the good book, but as God only made me human, I occasionally stumble and fall. Several weeks ago, I was having a beer and shooting pool at the local watering hole and got to chatting with a pretty waitress. One thing lead to another, led to another, and by the time the sun came up, we had become sinners in the eyes of the good Lord. But then a miracle happened. A few weeks later, she got in touch with me to tell me we had conceived and brought life to the world. But she told me that it was her wish to terminate the pregnancy on account that I am unemployed and she makes a very meager salary. I objected, of course, but she persisted and has scheduled the abortion procedure for next week. She has asked me to give her a ride to the clinic on the day of the procedure because she does not want anyone else to get word of this, and I agreed to. Would it be unethical, by bounty hunting standards, if I were to haul her off from the clinic directly to the county sheriff? It feels like a bit of a betrayal of her trust, but at the same time, it's her body and her choice, and she has made the choice to take life away from the living. <laughs> That's some dark shit, Katie. And it sounds so real. I mean, by the time the sun came up, we had become sinners in the eyes of the good Lord. That is how people in Texas talk. <laughs> I was going to say, every Texan talks in exactly that manner. That's how Joe it's Rogan awesome. talks. That is definitely, as soon as he moved there, he started talking like that. And he got so, a deep southern accent, deep drawl. Insider also picked this up. Uh, headline was Reddit shuts down forum for Texas abortion bounty hunters. Some big names tweeted about it. Steve Silberman, who's done some good work on autism and is like a, a respectable writer. He said he quote retweeted, um, what's her name? Kelly Kendall Brown. He quote retweeted Kendall Brown and said, who could have possibly imagined that Texas assholes who call themselves Christian would be this freakishly sociopathic except everyone? Okay. Katie. Jump to you. You got an email. Do you want to just maybe read the top of that email? Sure. So I, we got a tip the other day. This is from a listener. I'll just read you part of it. Recently, rdrama.net, a drama-focused Reddit spinoff, has been creating bait subreddits to see who bites. Remarkably, a couple of extraordinarily obvious bits of satire got swept up by the culture war ecosystem and spun into actual news stories panics. So let's just pause right there. What does he mean or they mean by bait uh in this context what's bait so the idea would be posting something i don't know something like there's a group of men in texas who call themselves bounty hunters who are trying to um enable the arrest of women that they had slept with <laughs> something like that something that sounds 
crazy and impossible and too weird to be true that they would maybe strategically post around the internet and see if any actual news news sources would pick this up and treat it like a real story. And and to understand why anyone would do this, you just need to know a little bit about the mentality of of trolls. And basically, there are people who like to fuck around and like to post garbage and they get such a jolt of joy when mainstream outlets pick up their garbage. And because – in part because we live in hyper-partisan times and in part because because there's frequently weird shit going on like Donald Trump getting elected or Texas passing this ridiculous law, it's like an environment where people are ready to believe the worst about their adversaries, right? Right. I mean we just did an entire segment about a professional writer who spent his free time writing fake letters to a Slate advice column. It's people fucking around on the internet. Yeah. So basically what happened is this person pointed you to rdrama.net, which is indeed like a Reddit spinoff that seems to be mostly dedicated to just uh, baiting Reddit, to creating fake content on Reddit in an attempt to troll people and piss them off. So a little bit more than two weeks ago, someone posted, hey, gunslingers, come join us on TX Bounty Hunters, a new community dedicated to fighting and profiting from those who would break the law of our beautiful state. If you read this in full context, they're basically saying, let's go pretend to be Texas bounty hunters on Reddit and try to get people to pay attention to us. Right. So that's exactly what happened. Right. And and the subreddit that was founded slash r slash TX bounty hunters, uh, if you just looked at it briefly, it, it looked to be Texas people trying to take advantage of the law and trying to make money off it. If you read it closely, I think a lot of it would come across as a little bit stilted, like what we just read. Uh, as the, the vice story we just mentioned noted, the subreddit was quickly taken down. Um, so on our drama, they celebrated this. There's a post we'll link to in the show notes with the headline, Vice Gets Bounty Hunted. Subheadline, great work, dramatards. You did it again. Here's a post from Tiberius, who is the guy who wrote – Dramatars. I think you need to use a trigger warning before you use that term. <laughs> Drama R words. Uh, so here's a post from Tiberius, who claims to be the person who wrote that ridiculous excerpt I just read. That was my bait. I am going to have the article printed and framed. I still don't comprehend how so many of these R words are fail are He did not say R word. <laughs> are falling so hard for a fairly obvious This is bait. the problem with expurgating this shit. Just say it, Jesse. Alright, I still don't comprehend how so many of these retards are falling so hard for a fairly obvious bait. As if there's actually people on Reddit unironically typing shit like by morning we have become sinners <laughs> in the eyes of the good lord. <laughs> I think the key takeaway here is when these journos and abortion enthusiasts see a quote christian their brains malfunction and they lose what little ability they have to think rationally their brains are rotted from the years of twitterverse and god knows what else and they're completely out of touch with reality good to keep in mind for future baits so i obviously don't like abortion enthusiasts is kind of mean i think the rest of this is right like a certain kind of online person when I'm stupid enough to go on Twitter, I am flooded with the most idiotic takes. The system is designed to surface the dumbest, most emotionally arousing takes from both sides. So the more time I spend on Twitter, the more I will think everyone is a moron. So I think part of the problem here, as this person's alluding to, is journalists who are on Twitter all day, they get a little bit radicalized and, and they think that like – this is how Texan Christians talk. I mean, that's part of it, right? Right. And I wonder how many, there's probably a handful of like New York based reporters who grew up in the suburbs of Dallas who, 
you know, maybe in a family that is pro-life, um, but there's not many. Like Liz Bruning, she grew up in Texas. She like knows what conservatives sound like. She probably wouldn't have fallen for this. But there's a real lack of um of sort of understanding about how these cultures work. And this happens on both sides, like Tucker Carlson thinking that this that some liberal actually was having like refused to take off his mask during sex. It's the same thing. It's assuming the worst, assuming uh, these caricatures of your political opponents because you don't know any of them in real life. Yeah, yeah, and and people benefit a huge amount from from this sort of negative polarization from thinking the other side is just full of complete wackos. And there are wackos. Texas did pass a crazy abortion law, but. The fact that there was so little time before people just seeded this bait, um, also just sort of there were, there was gleeful celebration on our drama that was kind of funny after this person posted that they'd been the author of that bait. One of the responses was, you drop this and an emoji of a crown. <laughs> Another person said, damn man, it would be a dream come true to have my shitty bait reprinted by the media. Um, so thanks to this tip that you passed on to me, I, I, you were you were just busy with something else. I, I got in touch with SCD. That was the guy who did the original post on our drama calling for the bounty hunters to assemble. I'm going to post our full back and forth for our patrons, like as a transcript. But but I wanted to note a few things. Um, he, here's what he said when I just sort of asked him like why he did the post. I did it for laughs. That's literally it. I don't believe in taking the internet seriously. Never have. I grew up using 4chan where nothing was off limits, nothing was sacred, and the only real rule was the first to take it seriously loses. I guess I ne never really grew out of that mindset. I'm older now, have a career, a fiancé, and a life, but I still like to view the internet as the Wild West it once was, a place where you could say anything, be anyone, and act as <laughs> retarded as you like. Many who saw the post probably assume I'm pro-life. I'm not. The truth is my online positions and my real-life ones rarely line up. In real life, I'm pro-choice, vote Democrat, vaccinated, and a loving partner. Online, I'm often pro-life, avid Trump supporter, and a misogynist because these are the positions most likely to cause drama in today's zeitgeist. I feel like this would be very hard for someone who's not as online as we are to understand. Why would you go online and just adopt this alternate persona who who sort of – holds beliefs you don't hold in real life because it's fun <laughs> i mean that's i think that's what it comes down to it's because it's fun um it's a way of uh it's the same reason that the that that bennett madison or madison bennett or whatever his name is would have written fake advice column letters when i was younger i used to write fake craigslist ads like it's just fun it's something to do you want a response from people with the in this case there are sort of and as in the case of, of Bennett Madison, there are, of course, some repercussions to this, though. Did you ask him about this? Yeah, I did. I basically said, uh, you know, I tried to sort of be empathetic, but I said, you know, what about someone who says, look, it's fine to be trollish, but but people are gullible and this did scare folks and spread misinformation. SCD replied, the sub, meaning the subreddit, was up for six hours and had only 63 members before it was banned. And then it still – and then Vice decided that that was a story. Yeah. The vast majority of people who were potentially misinformed from it stemmed from the journalist who decided to run a story on an obvious troll attempt. I mean, yeah, obviously I share some blame for making it in the first place, but I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. I'm, I'm torn on that. I mean, what do you think of that? Like, it's not my fault. I didn't make Vice write about it. I think he's right. I think that the Vice writers should have just done more digging and like had like a small amount of skepticism in the piece. And I've been fooled 
by shit before. We talked about this on a prior podcast when I worked at an environmental website. I was fooled by a, a guy who said that he was making a, um, like a real estate company for houses that will someday be, be oceanfront or something like that. Um, like to, to benefit from sea level rising. I got totally fooled by that because I didn't do enough due diligence. And this guy, whoever or person, whoever wrote the vice piece didn't do enough due diligence either. And so this should be a lesson to them. And there's also like, there's a danger of just taking shit off the internet. And I've done this before. Lots of like bloggers do it all the time. You just take some dumb shit off of Reddit or Twitter and you turn that into a news story when it's not actually news. Yeah. And, and just due diligence wise, I should acknowledge like I didn't vet this guy or check his story and he only wanted to talk via text not via voice because he doesn't want his real identity out there uh i just think it's overwhelmingly likely that he's telling the truth about being a troll when you look at the full context of like what was posted and how it was presented if if he he would have no incentive to be like no i didn't mean this and this is like very that's what what pisses me off is like if you're the sort of person who writes for vice surely you know what trolls are and surely you know this is a risk that you need to account for in your reporting yeah there was also another um another piece of bait how would you say it there was another one that was blowing up did you ask about or did you do any digging on the one about the um the 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 parent who apparently said in a trans reddit that that she was her daughter stopped taking her hormone blocker or her hormones and she was crushing them up in her daughter's food <laughs> no i didn't that was, that was so that was mentioned in the email that was sent to you and they said that that also originated from our drama right Right. So this was, this was a, uh, this was posted in r slash transparent trans kid. Um, it was repost, a screenshot was posted on Twitter by someone named Orwell and Good who has like almost 200,000 followers. It has 10,000 likes. So it's a screenshot that says, anyone else have trouble convincing your kids to continue transitioning? My 14 year old daughter, assigned male at birth, has started, started refusing her estradiol. Estradiol, I don't know how to say that. So I've been crushing the pills and putting them in her cereal in the morning. I'm just not sure why she doesn't want to take her pills anymore. I mean, that, that's the thing. People sometimes think that like 4chan trolls specifically target the left, which they do sometimes, but really they will target anyone that what that guy said is absolutely true. The cardinal sin of being online in their view is taking shit too seriously. So any ideologue who takes shit too seriously and will rise to the bait, they will chum the waters for them. I do think they often target the left, but what you just described, clearly they're targeting the right with that. Right. And there's also this other phenomenon where reporters sort of dip on, dip into these online communities and don't actually speak the language. Um, so a lot of this stuff, like, I mean, these are shit posts, but a lot of what you read and you see this oftentimes in reporting on incels, for instance, like Megan Daum had a woman on her podcast recently who wrote a book about incels. And she said, I haven't read the book and I can't remember her name, but she said, like the people who were reporting on this phenomenon didn't understand what was actually going on and they were extrapolating all of this in incorrect information because they didn't actually speak the language of these forums. I think that's like a chronic problem in so much reporting on this stuff. And and even just like – actually, I, let me give a, a, a shameful example from my own past if that's okay. Oh, please do. When I was like maybe – 10 or 11 or 12 fucking around on AOL instant messenger with friends. I don't remember the friend I did this with. It was like the friend was next to me and we were both, we would get into chat rooms with people and we would, this is so fucking stupid, but at the time we thought it was hilarious because we were 10. We would tell, ask them if they wanted to be part of a new club dedicating to baking, baking cakes. And then when they expressed interest, we're say, Oh cool. It's the kooky cake club. KKK. <laughs> 
And t- well, I guess it's funny to you. I was going to say to my 10 year old brain, this was incredibly hilarious because I'm a Jewish kid, white kid in the suburbs s- pretending to be with a group called the KKK. It's, it's I think stupid. It's, funny. it's juvenile. It's puerile. But if you, if you're a reporter and you were desperate to like write about how bad online radicalization is and you took that out of context, you'd be like, holy shit, the alt right is, is getting to Jewish white kids in the suburb. And, but really you just got conned by a 10 year old. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, I don't think that if you're like a journalist and trolls are inundating you with anti-Semitic imagery, I've said this before, it's not your job to be like, oh, they're just trolling because it's still disturbing. But if you want to write about the internet for a living, you need to understand trolls are like this dark matter that they affect everything. Every major online story, 4chan has influence on. I promise you, they're they're fucking everywhere. They're the most online obsessives you'll see anywhere. They're always there. You need to factor them in. Yeah, it's also possible that we have been trolled. Who knows? This could be a double a double troll job. The um a double troll, yeah. One other response, and and again, I'll post the rest of this for our patrons, but uh I asked, I'll just read my question directly. Do you think part of it is a reaction against piousness and censoriousness? Even as a grown adult, there's some part of me that responds to being told I'm not allowed to say something, but I just wanted to scream it. It feels like the most intense and creative trolling centers on the most hot button issues, and I feel like that could help explain why. SCD responded, oh, that's a huge part of it. There's actually a huge overlap between our drama and our slash stupid poll users, uh, parentheses, a subreddit dedicated to critiquing identity politics and wokeness as a whole. I think we did a um, AMA on there, Katie. Yeah. Sanctimonious moral busybodies are a favorite trolling target because they're literally everywhere online these days and take themselves very seriously. This website itself is a product of our original subreddit getting censored. And I um, I think to a lot of trolls, there's a sense that the internet is supposed to be this like nihilistic playground and the the, the Church folks have arrived and are ruining everything. Right. They've not just arrived. They're trying to bounty hunt. <laughs> yeah. $10,000 if you can find a racist 13-year-old and turn him in. <laughs> I'm on it. Let me just read one more quote from this guy that I thought summed it up. Today's internet is largely sterile, commercialized, and in my opinion, boring. People don't see the internet as a place where you can be anybody anymore, but instead as a direct extension of who you already are. Thanks to social media, most people's online presence is the same as their offline, whereas before almost everything was anonymous and you were conditioned to take everything written online with a grain of salt because you never really knew who you were talking to. This guy should like do trainings for like confused boomer journalists trying to understand trolling. Anything else jump out at you about this story, Katie? Do you think um do you think Vice is gonna correct uh correct this when an insider when they when they hear this podcast? That's a good question. They could say there's like the sleazy thing they could do, which is be like, we're just reporting what the subreddit says, and they could also point out accurately that like the law is the law. I don't think they'll correct it. I, I think they should, because at this point there's they should at least present the evidence this was a troll job, because there's certainly significant evidence, if not dispositive. Right. There's probably nothing technically incorrect about their post because they're reporting on the Reddit banning. But if you're giving people the impression that this is something that was actually happening, well, you're spreading misinformation. I look forward to uh, the Daily Beast and NBC's misinformation reporters being all over the story. There's a lot of very shitty journalists that is uh, technically not incorrect. I think people hide behind that a lot. Yeah, for sure. All right, Kate, does that about wrap up the episode? Anything else uh, you want to get off your chest? Do you want to finally you know, say how you feel about me? Oh, I think everybody knows how I feel about you, Jesse. <laughs> this has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, I will offer you $10,000 for evidence of Katie Herzog's anti-Semitism, which is a pretty easy $10,000. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, 
If this podcast ever transforms into something of a tribunal doling out Poe-Face judgment to guilty white cis for the crimes of allyship, blame Jesse. Thank you.